Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 466. It's titled, Does Dividend Investing Still Work? Earlier this month, Meta, formerly named Facebook, announced its first quarterly dividend of 50 cents per share. The dividend will be paid on March 26, 2024, for shareholders of record who own the stock as of February 22, 2024. Meta has been a public company since 2012. It's never previously paid out a portion of its profits as a dividend. Now it will pay about 9% to 13% of what it earned on a per share basis as a dividend to its shareholders. The cash used to pay the dividend is cash Meta will not be able to deploy in other ways. It won't be able to use that cash to invest in future projects, and it can't use the cash to pay down debt or buy back shares of Meta's common stock. The day after Meta made its dividend announcement, its common stock jumped 20% to $474 per share. In theory, when a publicly traded company pays a dividend, its stock should drop by the amount of the dividend, in the same way that the net asset value of a mutual fund or ETF falls by the amount of the dividend paid. If there's less cash that the fund has or the company has on its balance sheet because it paid out the dividend, then the investment should be worth less. That's not actually how it works, however. Companies such as Meta don't initiate a dividend or increase the dividend without serious consideration. Back in 1976, economist Fisher Black published a seminal paper on dividends. It was titled The Dividend Puzzle. In the paper, Black wrote that dividend policy says things that managers don't say explicitly. Managers and directors don't like to cut their dividends. So they'll raise their dividend only if they feel the company's prospects are good enough to support the higher dividend for some time. And they will cut the dividend only if they think the prospects for a quick recovery are poor. And so sort of the unwritten statements when companies make dividend announcements to increase the dividend, to initiate the dividend, is that there will be enough cash and the prospects of the company is good enough to sustain that dividend. And it's not just companies that do that. Managers of closed-end funds, for example, where much of the return comes from dividends, are very deliberate about raising a dividend to make sure it's sustainable. The idea of not making big changes in your dividend is known as dividend smoothing. Companies like to have a stable payout, and then they increase it when they feel they can, or that they, they like to increase it, clearly. But if they don't see that the cash will be there looking out several quarters, then they'll be hesitant to do that. Now, the data supports the idea that companies that cut their dividend are signaling things are not going well. The worst performing stocks are those that cut their dividends. This is research by Ned Davis Research goes back to 1973, and they sort all the stocks that make up the S&P 500. This is U.S. large and mid-cap stocks. And then they separate them into categories over time. Dividend growers and initiators. So companies that pay a dividend 
and they announce a higher dividend or they announce that they're, they're starting to pay a dividend. So Meta will now be included in the dividend initiator pool. Now, the category is all dividend-paying stocks. The all dividend-paying stocks would be both those that are dividend growers as well as dividend payers that don't change their dividends. They include non-dividend-paying stocks, the fifth category. And then the sixth category is dividend cutters or eliminators. The other category I didn't mention was just the overall equal-rated total return of the S&P 500. This study goes back to 1973, and the annualized return for the dividend growers and initiators over that time is 13%. All dividend-paying stocks returned 12.7%. The equal-weighted S&P had an annualized return of 12.3%. Non-dividend-paying stocks returned 11.7%. Dividend payers that didn't change their dividends, so they're not increasing their dividends and, and thus signaling that they can't afford to increase their dividends, they did second worse at 11.1% annualized. And then the dividend cutters or eliminators did the worst of all at 9.6% annualized. So over this long history, going back to 1973, it's the dividend growers and initiators that did the best, followed by all dividend-paying stocks. Those that did the worst were the dividend cutters. But something's changed in the last 20 years. Non-dividend-paying stocks have outperformed all the other categories. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words for one of this week's sponsors, LinkedIn. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team, faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right software professionals to develop some of our tools has made all the difference in the world. And LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right candidates for your position. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. There was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal by John Sindro. He writes, ever since the 2008-2009 financial crisis, investors have sneered at dividends. U.S. equities with dividend yields above 5% have returned roughly 450% since the end of 2008. That would be a cumulative return. That's below the 640% gain for the wider S&P Composite 1500. That would include both dividend payers and non-dividend payers. Companies that didn't pay dividends returned 1,200%. So significantly outperformed. We'll look at comparable data from Ned Davis Research. In that article, Sindro quoted Daniel Paris who is a portfolio manager and published a book called The Ownership Dividend. Paris says the notion that large, successful businesses wouldn't make a cash distribution to company owners is abnormal. Paying dividends is the norm. 
From 1602, when the first stock exchange was launched in Amsterdam, until the mid-20th century, investors bought stocks for the dividends. Stocks were considered risky, and investors demanded cash to compensate for that risk. Frequently, for long stretches of time, the dividend yield for stocks, which is the dividend divided by the price, was higher than the yield to maturity on bonds because stocks were considered risky, riskier than bonds, then investors wanted cash, percentage of the profits, to compensate for that risk. But here we are. If we look at over the past 20 years, non-dividend-paying stocks, data from Ned Davis Research, returned 10.1% annualized, the same return as the dividend growers and initiators. Now, the dividend cutters still did the worst, 3.2% annualized, and the dividend payers that didn't change their dividends did second worst at 7.9%. If we look at the past decade, non-dividend-paying stocks, 11.2% versus 10.8% for dividend growers and initiators. And, And the same order, the dividend cutters, again, did the worst. So what is switching in those periods is the return between the non-dividend-paying stocks and the dividend growers and initiators. Going back to 1973, dividend growers and initiators outperformed the non-dividend-paying stocks by about 1.3% annualized. But over the past 5, 10, and 20-year periods, non-dividend-paying stocks have edged out the dividend growers and initiators. Not by much. But something's changed. Fisher Black in his paper said that investors might prefer not to receive dividends if the tax rate on dividends is higher than the tax rate on long-term capital gains. But in the U.S., since the Job Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2003 was passed, the tax rate for qualified dividends, which would include dividends paid by publicly traded companies through their common stock, that tax rate has been the same as for long-term capital gains. If you have taxable income and you're married filing jointly, income below roughly $89,000, there is no tax on dividends or capital gains. If you're married filing jointly with taxable income between $89,000 and $553,000, then the capital gains tax rate, long-term capital gains, 15% as is qualified dividends. So the tax rate, because it's the same, doesn't really impact the preference for investors of whether they want dividends or not. Granted, with long-term capital gains, the investor can choose when they want to take that if they're in an individual stock. They don't necessarily have that choice if they're in an ETF or mutual fund, whereas the dividend, it's, you're paying the tax when it's received, so you, you have less flexibility. There was also the idea that investors back in the day preferred dividends because if they needed cash, the transaction cost, the commissions to sell the the investment in order to raise the cash to meet spending needs, those expenses were exorbitant, the transaction costs, when commissions to trade stocks was $40 per share. But that's not the case today. Most online brokers, the commission for trading stocks, essentially zero. Here we see that something seems to have changed in the last two decades. The non-dividend-paying stocks are outperforming all dividend-paying stocks and edging out, performance-wise, the dividend growers and initiators. 
on AssetCamp, which is our research platform for individual investors that want to better understand what's going on with common stocks, specifically indexes, we can get some clues for why non-dividend-paying stocks are doing better than dividend-paying stocks. In our AssetCamp update next month, new release, we're introducing summary tables where subscribers can sort the 46 stock indexes that we have by 13 different metrics. And so I I did some sorts. Uh, First off, I looked at the returns of growth versus value. By and large, growth companies have a lower dividend yield than non-growth companies. So the dividend yield for U.S. growth stocks, this is the MSCI USA Growth Index, is 0.4%. The long-term average is 1.8%. So the dividend yield for growth stocks has actually fallen over the past few decades. The dividend yield for U.S. value stocks is 2.5%. This is as of the end of January. The long-term average is 3.8%. So even the value stocks have a lower dividend yield now than they did going back really to 1970. So companies are paying a lower amount relative to their price in dividends. When a company pays less in dividends, it's often they're paying a a lower percentage of their profits out the dividends. And, And the percentage of profits that companies pay in dividends is called the payout ratio. For U.S. growth stocks, that's 16%. So 84% of U.S. growth stocks Earnings is staying with the company for them to reinvest. For U.S. value stocks, it's 47% of earnings get paid out in dividends. That's the payout ratio. And for all U.S. stocks, which includes growth and value, it's 36%. Surprisingly, though, outside of the U.S., the payout ratios for growth stocks is much higher. 39% for non-U.S. growth stocks compared to 16% for U.S. growth stocks. So they're, they're paying more of their earnings out in dividends, which is why the, the dividend yield for non-U.S. growth stocks higher. It's 1.7% versus the 0.4% dividend yield for U.S. growth stocks. Companies that are typically paying less out in dividends with lower payout ratios should, in theory, have higher earnings growth partly because some of the cash that they're using to not pay out the dividends is used to buy back stocks. So that can increase the earnings per share growth rate. And and that plays out. If we look over the past decade, this is a performance attribution, USA value stocks had an average dividend yield of 2.8%, and the earnings per share grew at 3.9%. So combined, that's around a 6.5% annualized return. If we compare that to USA growth, that dividend yields average 0.9% over the past decade, and nominal earnings growth has been 8%. So the earnings per share is growing faster with those growth companies. And combined, just the dividend yield plus the nominal earnings growth, growth has outperformed the value style. Now, again, when we're talking about the dividends strategies, value does have a higher dividend yield, but we were really comparing the dividend growers and initiators, but that even they are underperforming slightly the non-dividend payers, which in many cases are being dominated by the big cap growth companies, particularly technology stocks. And that's why Meta is kind of an outlier in initiating this dividend. Before we continue, let me share a word from our sponsors at Betterment. 
Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Another way that we can rank stock indexes to look at, well, how are they generating higher profits? Are they just better at deploying capital? And the measure that we have for that is known as the return on equity. It's a measure of profitability of companies, and it's calculated by dividing the the aggregate net income of an index by the aggregate shareholders' equity, the amount of capital, equity capital that they've raised, including retained earnings that haven't been distributed to shareholders as dividends. And by and large, the return on equity for growth companies is higher. The long-term average for USA growth is 20.2%. As of January 2024, it was 29.5%. So that would be representative of the the return on equity over the past year. If we compare that to USA value, the long-term average is 13% return on equity. The most recent year, it was 15%. So we're seeing growth companies are able to generate more profit per dollar of capital. They're just being more efficient, more productive. And as a result, they're growing their earnings per share faster between a combination of buying back shares and their investment projects. And that is allowing them in the current environment over the past decade to outperform value stocks, growth outperform value, even though value had the higher dividend. Now, one of the other things we haven't really talked about is the valuation. We just look at the overall annualized return of U.S. growth over the past decade, it's returned 15.2% annualized. But almost six percentage points of that return is because the price-to-earnings ratio of U.S. growth stocks went from 21.6 to 38.2. We wrote about this in our Insider's Guide newsletter a few weeks ago, just the, the sheer impact of growth stocks in the U.S. getting more expensive meaningfully more expensive than their average. USA Value saw its PE go from 15.4 to 18.9. That added around two percentage points over the past decade to performance. So growth has gotten more expensive, but we have to recognize growth has been much more efficient at deploying capital and has outperformed just based on the small dividends yield and the earnings growth. One consideration, though, is it possible that the increase in indexing is contributing to the outperformance of non-dividend-paying stocks relative to dividend-paying stocks? Back in the 60s and 70s, when individual investors, they clipped the coupon. They bought individual stocks, in many cases, for the dividend. But with indexing, and as many investors invest through defined contribution plans, 
401k plans in the U.S., that could mean investors are just aren't that interested in dividends. They're not necessarily seeing it because it's just money they're packing away, saving over the decades, many in target date funds. And we've seen a flow out of active mutual funds where you had active mutual fund managers more cognizant of dividend policies, dividend yield versus just a straight index fund. Since 2014, there's been $1.9 trillion outflow from stock mutual funds, according to Morningstar, and $2.9 trillion into stock ETFs, most of which are passive tracking a specific index. Now, the good news is that's led to a lower expense ratio over time. There's been more competition. Actively managed equity mutual funds have seen their expense ratio drop to 0.66% as of the end of 2022. Back in 1996, it was 1.1%. But the average index equity mutual fund, its expense ratio has fallen from 0.3% in 1996 down to 0.05% today. The ETF revolution, the indexing revolution has pushed down cost for investors. But there are some investors, hedge fund managers, that think there's some downside to this. And we've done episodes in the past. Is indexing a bubble? Has it gotten too big? Recently, David Einhorn who runs the hedge fund Greenlight Capital, was a guest on Barry Ritzholtz's Master in Business podcast. Einhardt said, I view markets as fundamentally broken. Because of the rise of indexing, Einhardt believes there's not enough investors out there correcting the price of undervalued companies. Most investors or many investors are price agnostic because they're just investing through an index fund. And even the quant investing hasn't really Change that. He says, does algorithmic investing have an opinion about price? And he said, yes. Like, what is the price going to be in 15 minutes? Greenlight Capital has changed how they're investing. They're not waiting for the market to correct the undervalued companies. Instead, Einhorn says, we can't count on other long-only investors to buy our things after us to push up the price. We're going to have to get paid by the company. And that payment by the company if they're generating cash flow, can be in the form of dividends or it can be in the form of buybacks. And I think it's a combination of that. In the past 20 years, these growth companies, these tech companies, these non-dividend paying companies have been more effective at deploying capital and buying back stocks. And so they've grown their earnings and outperformed dividend paying stocks that haven't been able to generate as high a return on capital. But it's also true that indexing has pushed up the value of those non-dividend-paying companies more than it's pushed up the value of dividend-paying companies. So as we look going forward, we don't know. There's some other reasons, though, to favor dividend payers. I recently had a discussion with a friend that is in the investment management business. And as an institutional advisor, I didn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about dividends because... We were managing assets for institutional investors, mostly endowments and foundations. They didn't care about dividends per se. Most of them had a spending policy where they spent a certain percentage of the total assets that they held. Typically, it could have been the three-year average balance of their portfolio. They might spend 4% or 5% of that. And then if they needed money, they, we would sell an investment. They would raise the money to spend. And because they're not for profit, there wasn't a tax consequence of that. But as an individual investor, and I was discussing this with his friend, he's at the point where he wants to tap some of his taxable investments to support spending. 
It's something that I do. We rely on our portfolio for a portion of our annual spending at this stage of our life, partly because with our business, we're putting so much capital into building software tools like Asset Camp. But when you're dependent on your portfolio, for this friend and, and for me, we find that we don't want the volatility. And it's nice to get the cash and not have to sell something to generate the cash. So I'm cognizant of the income and investment is paying. Now, not so much on the stock side, but certainly on closed-end funds that I invest in, some bond funds, preferred stocks, things of that sort. But one reason to favor dividend investing is it's, it's less volatile. If we go back to the 20-year statistics from Ned Davis Research, the standard deviation, so this is a measure of volatility, the range of returns, how much it deviates from the average for non-dividend paying stocks is 20% compared to 15.5% for dividend growers and initiators. And the maximum drawdown, the worst case loss over the past 20 years for non-dividend paying stocks was 55% versus 51% for the dividend growers and initiators. So there is less volatility with dividend growers than initiators. The most volatile, though, are the dividend cutters and eliminators. Standard deviation was 28.1%, the highest of all the categories, and the maximum drawdown is 83%. So, so the worst strategy is to have dividend stocks that cut their dividends, which is why it's helpful to not just buy dividend stock because they have a high yield. So in some of the ETFs, for example, that are in our model portfolio examples of money for the rest of us plus. We own the Wisdom Tree US Small Cap Quality Dividend Growth Fund. This is small cap, ticker DGRS. It's buying dividend paying US small companies, but they're buying companies with growing the dividend. So they have that additional screen. Is the dividend growing? Same for the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets High Dividend ETF, DEM. It is focusing on dividends, but it applies a, a quality momentum screen to make sure it's, it's hopefully avoiding companies that are getting ready to cut their dividend because that's the worst strategy of all. One reason to focus on cash flow, to focus on dividends is it is less volatile and it's emotionally less taxing just to protect against the downside, especially when you're relying on that cash flow to live. You don't want your portfolio selling off in a big way, which is oftentimes, and in this case of this friend, he had different buckets. He had a cash bucket for short-term needs. He had kind of this intermediate bucket for investments that he was going to, to live off of and was worried about the downside. And then he had a growth bucket where he just was fine with the volatility. And sometimes having this bucket approach can be helpful, but the dividend, that income can reduce the volatility. Probably the most famous dividend-paying ETF is the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF. Ticker is VIG. And when we compare it to the S&P 500, such as the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF, IVV, VIG has been less volatile. So the standard deviation is 13.4 for VIG versus 15% for IVV. The maximum drawdown has been less. Going back 15 years, it was 47% for VIG, 55% for IVV. But VIG has underperformed the overall stock market, as represented by the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF. Over the past decade, the annualized return has been 11.4% versus 12.7%. So what we're seeing in, with ETFs that invest in dividend growers and initiators, they're underperforming. 
just like we saw with the Ned Davis research study. Does that mean dividend investing is dead? Does not work? No, I don't think so. It's been a tough period. There's reasons for it. But given the high valuation of the non-dividend payer growth stocks right now, I think it's okay to have a variety of return drivers. It's okay to have dividend-oriented strategies, income-oriented strategies to keep the volatility of your portfolio down, to keep your emotional volatility down because you can depend on that cash flow and not have to be selling to raise cash if you're relying on your portfolio. The non-dividend payers, the tech companies have been excellent at deploying capital with high returns on equity, but now they're pricey. And so we can get these long periods of one strategy outperforming another. Why we diversify, we have a combination of strategies, different return drivers, one of which can be dividend strategies. I have some in my portfolio, we have some in our models, but that's not exclusively what we're focused on. We want an asset garden with a variety of asset types and return drivers one of which can be dividend-paying stocks, those that are growing their dividends, initiating the dividends. It could be a high-dividend ETF that has some type of screen to make sure we're hopefully protecting against the worst-performing segment, dividend cutters and eliminators. That's episode 466. Thanks for listening. You may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.